This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Charles Anderson from Charles Reed Anderson and Associates on the tipping point on Internet of Things that's converging in Asia. We discuss how Asian governments are currently changing their smart city strategies and look at the convergence between business enterprise and vendors within the IoT ecosystem. Hi, Charles. Hello, Bernard. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm keeping myself quite busy. Yes, and I think we have just been through the IoT Asia 2017 conference. I'm talking to Charles Anderson, founder of Charles Reed Anderson and Associates, and of course, one of the top leaders in the Internet of Things in Asia Pacific. And of course, Charles, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? I've been still doing a bit of traveling around, talking to a lot of the different technology vendors and governments around the region to see where they're making progress and where they're running into challenges. And then, of course, watching the developments out of Mobile World Congress and this week at IoT Asia as well. You gave a keynote in IoT Asia. Any interesting solutions or vendors at the event that caught your eye? Yeah, and and the stands, there's quite a few interesting solutions that we saw. A lot of it is still very hardware-based, but a lot of it's focusing on low-power WANs. But we also saw some interesting solutions from one augmented reality company called Augd, A-U-G-G-D, out of uh, Sydney. I mean, they were doing some more enterprise-grade type solutions, which were quite interesting around that. So I think AR in the enterprise is starting to get ready. We saw a lot of different solutions around the Unibiz, which is the Sigfox operator. So the Unibiz Unibels, which is very similar to an Amazon Dash. But they had a couple that you could actually test out. One of them allowed you to order yourself a coffee. Then a company called Favorite Median has developed a solution for a burger chain in New York where they give it to their customers and they can press a button and it delivers a burger to them. So it's quite a neat app around that. But being in Singapore, without a doubt, the most interesting one for me was a company called AmbiComfort. And uh, for those of you who don't live in Singapore, in Singapore, air conditioning units are basically in every room that you have. So it's not like the U.S. where there's central air. And AmbiComfort has developed a solution that will allow it'll take, it'll take over the infrared to control these different air conditioning units, and it'll allow you to remotely control them. Now, this is something we haven't been able to do and leverage things like Google Nest in Singapore. So I've been waiting for this type of solution to come out. I just got one, and I can't wait to install it this weekend. That's interesting, which comes to me talking about the main subject of the day, which is the talk that you have give or the keynote address that you have give in IoT 2017 this year. So it's regarding IoT in Asia, the tipping point. I mean, to start the conversation, what is the current state of IoT in Asia pertaining to smart cities? Well, I think what we've seen is it's not really overwhelming. We're not seeing these great new things come out that we thought um, we would be seeing. What we're doing still is a lot of the more basic infrastructure-centric type solutions because that's where the cities are finding that they can actually get some ROI. So we're seeing more predictive maintenance and asset tracking. We're seeing a lot more initiatives around smart buildings. And that's just because a lot of these governments have many of them so they can keep extending it out and going deeper. So they are delivering value, but the things we don't see as much. Where we are seeing some interesting initiatives are a couple of smart street lamps initiatives. So so Singapore is going to be going down this path, and uh, Taipei has as well. And I'm a big fan of connected streetlights, which sounds really silly, but it's not only about the energy savings, because all those streetlights are actually sites where you can attach different sensors. So Taipei, for instance, is using environmental sensors on the street lamps 
so they can measure quality of uh, air quality. And Taipei is also going down big down the shared transport one. So they've had a great, very successful shared bike scheme. And this year they'll be launching a shared scooter scheme and a shared car scheme. So I want to see how those take off as well. And I should be up there in the next couple of months to hope to test it out. I think during the talk, you have some very interesting observations that you made on smart cities, particularly with Taipei and Singapore. Can you just walk us through the process? I think what you see, like why I like looking at these two cities is I think they were the first two to really figure out in Asia that it isn't so much about just deploying the technology. It's about harnessing all these different government organizations and trying to manage and lead this from a central process. So what we see is both of them have already, like the first thing they did was set up a large program management office. And I'll give you the example for Singapore here. So they created under the Smart Nation program, they have a Smart Nation program office. But it was still fragmented a bit because that reported into the prime minister's office and then you still have other government ministries that have things like GovTech, which does the delivery arm for it, but that sits in a different group. Then the Ministry of Finance is doing things around the Digital Government Directorate. And what they do is do more things around 2FA and trying to create a digital currency. So they do collaborate across the ministries, but there was still no central real deployments going on or strategy going on. And Singapore just announced in the last couple of weeks that they are going to restructure that and they are going to centralize. And this is a very interesting initiative. Because what they're going to do is create something called the Smart Nation and Digital Government Office. Now, on that, you'll have representatives from the major organizations. So the Smart Nation Program Office, or the Ministry of Communications and Infrastructure Information, Ministry of Finance, and they'll jointly come up with the initiatives, and then they'll leverage GovTech to go out and do the delivery. So when I saw this, I mean, it really makes sense. I think they've learned that, yes, they are collaborating, but they know they can collaborate further going forward. Are there any infrastructural deployments that you've seen, for example, those that you see in Taipei? Um, on the infrastructure one, they're, they're doing a lot around the smart building space, and they do a lot around trying to just leverage the existing buses they have and drive, make everything drive more efficiently. So they focus a lot on the transport space. Taipei can get a decent amount, if you spend much time there, there can be a decent amount of traffic. So they're trying to leverage things that will help people take public transport or use shared transport to keep more vehicles off the road. But a lot of the things, like I said, they're still going to be around the predictive maintenance, you know, the asset tracking and video surveillance type of solutions. During your talk in IoT Asia 2017 this year, you mentioned that one of the key themes you want to talk about to drive IoT success is collaboration. Can you explain how this works within these different stakeholders? For example, internal collaboration within organizations and business enterprises, vendor collaboration, and even having data collaboration as well. Yeah. Sure. And this one, it's interesting because if you look at the projects that tend to fail in the Internet of Things, it tends to be when they've just gone out and IT has just deployed something and they haven't engaged the rest of the line of business. And don't get me wrong, I'm getting IT involved is important, but IoT needs to be run not like a technology deployment. It needs to be part of your strategy. So what you end up needing is things like senior management to get bought into it. You need the strategy teams involved because these solutions will define what role you're going to play in your industry and your go-to-market. Operations needs to get involved because it impacts your business processes. Marketing will get involved because it might be impacting your customer experience. Finance, of course, will want to get involved because someone's got to pay for it and they want to see where they're going to get their return. And most importantly, bringing the users in. And when we've seen really well-deployed solutions, it tends to be when they have this wider stakeholder group coming together to do it. And it's about bringing together not only the technical people, but the business people. And that was one of the key themes at IoT Asia this year was to try and bring in a different audience because it is going to impact all of us. And we need to start taking a more active role, even if we're not technically proficient people, you know, we can still have the business impact. We need to understand how these technologies will impact the business. Then what about the vendor collaboration piece then? The vendor side is interesting as well, because this is stuff that we've talked about for the last couple of years. 
what happens when technology vendors tend to go out with an IoT solution is they only have one component or two components of the ecosystem. They, they might make a thing that we're connecting, whether it's a VR headset or a surveillance camera, or they might be an analytics provider or it could be a mobile operator. But in general, what they need to do is partner with the rest of the vendors in the ecosystem to create a solution. Because any solution you have actually involves taking multiple products from multiple vendors to create a single solution. So you're going to have your things that collect the data, then you have to have a network that it gets stripped over. There'll be platforms that it goes through and servers that it's stored on. You're going to have the applications that will either share the information with us or initiate actions. And across all of this, what you have to think about is how do you secure all the different areas from the endpoints to the data in transit to the data at rest? How do you integrate all these different components together? And then most importantly, how do you start to manage and support it once it goes in life? That comes to the point of data collaboration. For example, different organizations have access to different datas. And do you see a form of data collaboration happening between organizations, like a form of data sharing? I mean, the governments are doing that. Do you see private organizations doing that as well? And they're starting to a lot more now. Governments are always big on the idea of open data because they want to take all this data that doesn't have privacy issues around it and open it up to the citizens so they can then go out there and try and create new solutions with it or they can combine different data sources. My favorite example of this is definitely going to be Under Armour. And to be actually honest with you, it's, it's an older use case. So back in 2015, Under Armour went out and acquired three platform companies. So you had Endomondo, MapMyFitness, and MyFitnessPal. Now, these are the exercise apps that people use when they wear a Fitbit or when they wear a smartwatch and they go running or they go to the gym and it tracks all that information. But what's interesting is that gave Under Armour, the sports retailer, a direct relationship with their customers. And those customers, there was 120 million of them. And so they were getting all that information. Now, this is really transformative because in that industry, Under Armour probably was five or six degrees away from where the end customer was. So they would have in between them, there'd be wholesalers, distributors, retailers, before they get the customer. So they, don't, they didn't know what their customers were doing. Now they get real information. So instead of doing a marketing campaign to millions of people, you can do a direct marketing campaign to a single person. And what I thought was amazing, that was in 2015, when they about two years ago when they did that initiative. Last year, so last year in the winter in 2016, a friend of mine was going running in Copenhagen, and it was the coldest day of the year. And he had his smartwatch on, and that watch captured information and sent it to Endomondo. Endomondo then sent that information up to Under Armour, who pulled in the weather information. And that day when he got home, that night he got an email from Under Armour saying that today was the coldest day of the year. Uh, were you prepared? Check out our latest winter running gear. Now, this is really transformative when you realize you can start using not only the data that you think you need, but pulling in these tertiary data sources to really make a more robust solution and understand more about your customer and tailor your offerings for them. So, I mean, this is what we want to see more done in the industry, but we need people who actually understand how to you know, take advantage of this data that we're capturing, but then combining it with sources that might not always seem logical. What are the key trends driving the IoT industry in Asia for 2017? I have two trends that I'm really watching this year. One of them I think is going to take off quite a bit. And I call it the emergence of the IoT OTT, so the IoT over-the-top players. Um, and it's going to be very similar to what we saw in mobile. We're in a situation right now where we've got basically more information than we need. What we need is more intelligence. So if you look at a standard building, a smart building is going to have a big high-rise, could have 150,000, 200,000 sensors sending information down. Those guys don't want to go out and buy more sensors. What they want is intelligence that helps them better manage that building. So we see solutions from the likes of Demand Logic out of the UK 
that can aggregate all this information from the multiple building management systems, you know, whether it's on a GE system, Johnson Control, Schneider, Honeywell, they can combine all that data together and then with a very nice graphical interface, send it back to the facilities management people. So they take that information and give them real intelligence that's actionable and allows them to better manage their buildings. So it's almost like a software as a service type thing coming in there that takes advantage of it. There's another one that I've seen around this doing video analytics, and it's not about selling new hardware or new cameras. It's using all the cameras you have, whether it's the latest and greatest HD camera, or you're going back to these old pixelated, you know, older cameras. It's leveraging the assets that are there. And there's another cool one that I've seen in the manufacturing space, a company called Falconry, that's F-A-L-K-O-N-R-Y. They come out of Silicon Valley, and they're doing AI for the manufacturing process. And what's interesting about it is they're sometimes they sell direct to the customers, but they're also working with a lot of the vendors that sell the predictive maintenance solutions into those manufacturers. And the reason the vendors want to work with them is they're doing leveraging like machine learning and deep learning to turn it around and take that information and turn it around much faster. So they can basically improve the process, improve the, the life of the assets at a much faster rate than they could previously. Now, all these things are relatively low cost because it's as a service. But what we're seeing in almost all of these is people getting a very fast return on investment, normally within a matter of months. You have talked about low power winds in one of our last few episodes uh, previously. In your talk, you have actually mentioned that there is a tipping point now in Asia. How did that lead you to this conclusion then? What I'll do is I'll just give a quick overview of what's going on with LP WANs first, just in case people weren't ahead and listened to the other one. So the, the low power WANs basically need dedicated IoT networks, and that's what these are going to do. They're not for the HD cameras. These are for sending small amounts of data. So it could be for predictive maintenance, asset tracking, logistics type solutions. They're very low cost to deploy. But what you see is once you have this dedicated network, the operators can then turn around and cut the connectivity cost by over 90%. So that's great for the enterprises and consumers that want to do it. And it really helps generate market demand. And the smart cities in particular are really looking forward to this. But what you end up having is there's there's three basic choices on this right now. You've got your narrowband IoT, Allura and Sigfox. So narrowband IoT is the mobile operators, and that's going to be backed by Nokia, Huawei, and Ericsson. LoRa and Sigfox are independent. So they're basically an unlicensed spectrum. And you could have a fixed operator running a LoRa network, like you've got Tata Communications in India, you've got Telecom Malaysia in Malaysia running it, or you could be like Sigfox, and they have their own Sigfox operators. So they actually develop an operator in each country, which tend to be more systems integrators. Now, why I find this space fascinating right now is I started looking into who's actually backing which vendors. And you can see that MBIoT is basically backed by the chipset manufacturers, Qualcomm and Intel, and those software vendors I just mentioned. But they haven't done that much with NBIoT recently. But it's interesting because they are bringing more people into it. The most latest development is that Cisco Jasper is now going to support NBIoT. But at Mobile World Congress this year, there was really no major announcements about big deployments. And these deployments in NBIoT were supposed to start in the second half of 2016. And we don't expect to see significant ones to the second half of 2017. So it's sort of a crux right now. We're not sure what's going to happen next. But the LoRa side, they've been bringing in a lot more partners, and they start bringing in people who do platforms, like the activities. They do have the hardware vendors as well, but they're bringing in more SIs and solution vendors as well, like IBM to partner with them. But Sigfox is the one that's really brought in the most interesting partners recently. If you just saw anything about Bosch Connected World recently, they did a lot of solutions there. They also developed a partnership with Telefonica. Now, this is the first time that a mobile operator has partnered with Sigfox, and this is going to be for a global partnership. 
So that's a really interesting deal. Well, I mean, they're the most ready. They're already in 32 countries. We'll be at 60 in about a year from now. They've got a lot of big backers behind them, especially the solution vendors that operational technology vendors are getting involved. They're also getting assistance integrators involved. So they see this as the one that's most ready to go. Now, the reason I say it's the tipping point is that for some reason, everybody now has something to do with low power WAMs. I don't care whether you're talking about a hardware vendor, all the operators have to be thinking about it, all the software vendors and the services ones, but also those operational technology vendors. Everybody on that supply side is engaged. If you look at the hundreds of vendors that are out there, the biggest vendors in the world, all of them have a role to play in this. And what's nice about this and why it's the tipping point is there's a lot of pent up demand in a lot of industries where we need this lower cost connectivity, you know, going across agriculture, energy for smart grids, manufacturing and logistics, and like I mentioned, smart cities. So what we're really seeing is that these things are coming together now and everyone's going to be competing in this one space. While that all sounds great and it should take off, it's going to be very difficult to make a success out of this. I mean, what you end up having is all the biggest IT vendors in the world are involved in this, but they're backing different solutions. Some back MBIT, some back LoRa, and some back Sigfox. So it's a fragmented market where a lot of these vendors are going to go out there and be, well, I won't say it, slamming the other vendors, but they're not always going to be seeing the nicest things. They're going to try and say why, why the one that I support is the best. And that creates confusion in the marketplace. Also on the use cases side, we need a lot more use cases around this. And the other thing you need to think about, these price points are going down so low that we don't know where we're going to generate money. If you want to be an operator in this space, your connectivity is going to be given away for free relatively soon. So you got to find ways to move into software and services and hardware. How are you going to get these low power vans to get the vendors to breach demand and supply then? Well, I think right now Sigfox will do a good job of that. They're the ones that are the most ahead on it. What we need to see is more deployments. I mean, I don't have a preference on this. I hope all three of them are successful, but I'm very concerned about the NBIOT and the lack of rollouts. And I'm worried that they're going to wait for 5G. And this is something that the operators and a lot of the vendors don't want to hear, but you know, there's a lot of rumblings in the market around if, if we don't see MBIOT deployment soon, are these operators just going to hold off and wait for a 5G deployment, which means operators are going to be out of the game in this for another year, two years at least. So that's going to be quite worrying on it. A lot of the other things, it's about bringing together that ecosystem to actually create the solutions. And that's why I still think like today, Sigfox in Asia is the, the best prepared to do this. But that doesn't mean that soon you couldn't start seeing Laura make a big comeback. And I expect they'll have a next wave of backers coming through as well to try and drive this. What would be your advice for organizations thinking about implementing their digital strategy with respect to enterprise mobility and Internet of Things, IoT then? The first thing I say, and I don't care whether it's going to be an enterprise or even all the technology vendors I talk to or a smart city and the governments I talk to, I always tell them one thing. What is the problem you're going to solve? If you don't know that up front, you know, don't even bother with the technology. So understand that you don't just connect something because you can. You really need to make sure you're solving a problem, whether it's going to be for a citizen, for your employee, for a business partner or for a consumer. The other thing I would say is really work on the partnerships. And that's why I talked a lot at the events around collaboration. You know, you need to bring in business people and technical people together to help them try and actually drive these solutions. You know, you need to understand the business impact and the operational impact on this. And the final thing I would say is I really try to encourage people to spend a lot more time treating this like a proper business strategy type engagement. So upfront, you do the analysis of the market where you identify the industry trends, competitive analysis, and user insights, and then figure out your product positioning in that ecosystem, because that'll let you know who you need to partner with and how you should be taking it out. When you get to that launch phase, it's all about doing your go-to-market messaging correctly. And you have to remember, a lot of the buyers of these solutions are gonna be in more of the line of business. So they're not gonna be your traditional IT buyers. 
So you need to have content and messaging that is geared towards a technology audience as well as a business-minded audience. And finally, on that side about the engagement, it's not only that you need to have engagement with you know, your customers, you need to think about all these partners. How do you help them sell your product and your solution? And how do you engage your employees so they all go out there and become you know, the spokespeople for the solutions you're driving? So it's much more of a traditional strategic methodology it needs to be implemented. I mean, we just don't see that a lot. It tends to be more when people just treat IoT as it's just another piece of technology, just go deploy it. And if we keep doing that, we're going to keep having solutions fail. Given that advice, what would be the key things you're going to watch carefully for IoT in Asia or even the rest of the world this year? The, the one thing I'm going to watch out for, and I've been, I've been ranting about this one for quite a while as well, I think Asia needs to have its own vendor partnerships. If the technology vendors wait for a big announcement from the U.S., say uh, large vendor A is going to partner with large vendor B, by the time that gets to Asia, it's too late. We need to form our own partnerships. But what I keep telling all the ICT vendors is you should be partnering with the operational technology vendors, so the people like GE, the people like Bosch, because they own the IoT decision maker. If you make a great gateway, you might make the best gateway in the world. You don't buy an IoT solution for the gateway. It's a component part. So those gateway providers need to go out and partner with the opportunity operational technology vendors to make sure that their products are actually getting pulled through. The other thing I'll be looking out for is low power WANs. We have some interesting use cases. You know, that you always hear the ones about, you know, the new buttons that are coming out, logistics, manufacturing, and then my most hated one, the connected mousetrap. But, you know, we need a lot more. We don't need a hundred. We don't need a thousand. We need tens of thousands of these things. We need to get citizens involved driving them. So I'm looking for more interesting use cases on that side. And then the final part of this that I'll be looking for is no matter how much we keep telling technology vendors to flip their messaging, to turn it into much more talking about business value instead of technology, they just don't do it. And there was a really interesting panel discussion going on at IoT Asia, and they brought in business people from some large enterprises. And one of the vendors had asked, well, how should I be selling IoT to you? And the best thing was the person on stage says, the first thing you should do is not to mention IoT. Don't talk to me about IoT. Talk to me about my business value. So I want to see if they can actually deliver that. <laughs> That's almost like trying to tell them not to throw any technical jargon on, on the business guys, right? Yes, it is a big ask, believe me. Yes, and of course, Charles, it's always great to have you on the show. And I'm definitely going to get you back soon to talk a lot more about what's going to be happening IoT in Asia for this year. So help my audience. How do they find you? Um, they can find me via my website, which is charlesreedanderson.com. They can find me on Twitter at... CRA Singapore. And you can also find me at LinkedIn. I do believe I'm the only Charles Reed Anderson on LinkedIn. And also all the IoT conferences happening across Asia and even the rest of the world, right? Yeah, I tend to be the talking head of a lot of these events as well. So I'll keep everybody updated on those. <laughs> you can find me at bleongcw.bernardleong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia on Twitter. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, ACAST, Tune in and, of course, Google Play in the U.S. market. Tweet to us. Recommend us on iTunes for five-star rating or on Overcast. And, of course, send me your feedback. Once again, Charles, thank you for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure. It's always great to be here. Thanks, Bernard.